Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking on urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the Think Tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this edition of City Talks. Today, my guest is John Houghton. John is a freelance consultant, advisor, expert in urban economic development. His LinkedIn profile says, I work with people to make better places. He's active on Twitter under the handle at MetLines and writes extensively on urban issues on the Medium platform. Welcome, John. So, so I'll focus today uh, the two blogs that you've written on the past, present and future of England's seasides towns under the title Solving the Riddle of the Sands. We'll get into the detail of the moment, but just why that subject, John? What what attracted you to, to the plight and to the potential future of uh, England's seaside towns? So it's something I've been interested in for a long time, since I was part of the team that developed the Margate uh, Renewal Framework. Uh, and I guess there are two things which uh, I think are interesting and important about uh, poverty in seaside towns. One is the extent of the problem, uh, which I don't think is appreciated, either in the general public or in policy terms. So there are very particular aspects of uh deprivation in the seaside context, which is not very well understood. And two, I think following on from that, is the lack of a overall policy framework and a lack of kind of policy tools. So even in the past, when we had things like the National Strategy for Neighbourhood Renewal, didn't really fit to the seaside context. And as I talk about in, I think, the first blog, um, there have been a number of kind of policy, you know, small scale policy interventions um, but they are fairly inchoate, they're fairly random, they're not set within an overall theory of change. Um, so there are things happening in seaside towns, but they're not part of an overall coherent policy framework. So for those two reasons, the extent of the problem and the lack of solutions and tools. Okay, and we'll, we'll come on to, the, to those issues. But you, you very much start the, you know, the, the first blog um, by taking the historical perspective. You mm. think about and talk about you know, the, the the emergence of the seaside towns and how that was connected to, you know, changing working patterns in industrial uh, industrial Britain, et cetera. So just take us back and through that. And then w- once we get through that, because I think that's an important way to frame the problem and the issue. And then what does that mean for the future? So just take us through the history of our seaside towns. So I say there are broadly three periods in the history of seaside towns. The first, which I call the kind of Gloriana period, was lasted about 100 years from the sort of late Victorian period to around the 1950s, 1960s. And that's a time in which, for a number of reasons, more and more people, particularly working class people, were able to take a holiday at the seaside. So places which were kind of small towns, all of a sudden became kind of tourist destinations and they grew very quickly uh, and they grew very extensively as well. Um, So you talk about places like, you know, kind of Margate, Skegness, Brighton to some extent, um, you know, went from being relatively small places to kind of large towns, um, which had a, you know, a kind of roaring kind of tourism trade. So there was that hundred years of kind of growth, um, which kind of peaked, I guess, in the sort of 19 kind of 50s. And it's also from that time that I think the English seaside town culturally becomes part of kind of England's kind of mindset. When we think of donkey rides and cranky hoteliers and sticks of rock and you know so we in a sense it's sort of it becomes you know the seaside town becomes imprinted um in the kind of general you know kind of yeah kind of like british kind of psyche 
So that's the kind of first period of kind of rapid growth. There's then a second period of equally rapid, if not even more rapid, decline, which is, again, another shift in the kind of tourism sector. So from the 1960s, when kind of cheap flights, basically, cheap flights and package holidays become broadly kind of affordable to kind of working class families, more and more, they choose to go to Spain or to, you know, kind of parts of France or Italy, um, to the kind of Costa package holiday, which becomes affordable. Uh, and there's the kind of first flight that kind of flies out from Manchester to Spain, uh, and it's taking all those families. They still serve shepherd's pie uh, on the way <laughs> there, which kind of amuses me. Um, but nonetheless, uh, so the impact that has uh, on seaside towns is very dramatic. So after 100 years of growth, you then have about 50 years of kind of rapid decline, uh, and there, which first of all becomes apparent in the kind of economic context because holidays were to some extent the kind of rationale for the kind of local economy that goes you then have physical problems in terms of you know kind of there isn't enough money to kind of invest and then you have some kind of quite severe social problems as well so that's the kind of second phase of decline uh, and then there's the third period which we're in now which I guess for the last kind of 20 years or so there's a recognition of the problem so you know in, like on the index of multiple deprivation seaside towns are unfortunately at the top if you like that you know they're amongst the kind of most deprived places so there's a recognition of the problem and there are some kind of policy interventions um and i think there is fragile recovery um which we're seeing this idea of kind of staycations and people choosing not to fly so i think we're seeing fragile recovery in seaside towns but it's very very fragile and i think there are a number of things we need to do to make that recovery uh yeah more kind of sustainable and solid yeah and we're not talking about every sort of town on the coast, John. I mean, that no, your point is there is a there is a particular type of town, as it were, on the coast that became synonymous with, you know, this tourism, that the industrial tourism, as workers got to, uh, legal time off, they weren't that far away. You connect that into expansion of the, the travel and train system, particularly. So just say a little bit about those kinds of seaside towns, because, again, I think that sort of hints at where we might we might go on the policy front as we begin to think about how we can help them uh, revive. So I'm not talking about all seaside towns, um, and there are many kind of seaside towns and places on the coast which are you know vibrant and fantastic, and and you know even you know kind of struggling seaside towns, which is why I kind of phrase it. So it's not all seaside towns, it's kind of struggling seaside towns. Even they have great things about them. So I want to be clear that you know I'm not being incredibly negative or kind of pessimistic. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, to answer your question i think there are certain kind of seaside towns which for a number of years have been struggling and they are typically places which one as you mentioned were traditionally reliant on the tourism economy which has shrunk uh, certainly by kind of historical standards so the core economic rationale for their growth disappeared very quickly so the first kind of characteristic is you know they've they've lost that kind of you know the kind of economic dynamo of tourism two they are often physically physically isolated now in a sense that's kind of quite tricky because seaside towns when they were popular were popular because they were far away you know you, you were you know you're getting out of the factory you're getting out of the overcrowded and smoggy and unhygienic cities and you're going down to the seaside town to the resort so their kind of distance was uh, a quality now that's actually quite kind of problematic um, because they are not very well connected into the surrounding economy and that particularly happened after the beaching acts which in the 1960s was a number of small lines and stations were closed down quite a large number in fact that left places kind of physically isolated and the third aspect i think is around the kind of social makeup 
uh, or sentencing side towns where for a number of reasons we have seen um, low-income households, often single people, but not exclusively, um, have moved to uh, certain kind of seaside towns. Uh, and you've also seen kind of migration as well. So you've seen large numbers of young men who have arrived wanting to work and migration is a really important part of the kind of modern mm. economy. Um, but that's added to quite an unusual kind of social mixture where you've, where you've got retirees and then lots of young uh, kind of men uh, looking for work and then a number of uh, of kind of a disproportionate number of kind of low-income households, often living quite chaotic lives, um, who have ended up in kind of seaside towns as well. So as I said, so it's not all seaside towns that kind of have problems. It's only certain of them, and I think it's that combination of the economic, the social, uh, the lack of connection, and the kind of physical problems as well. Yes, no, quite. I mean, I I, I think that's an important point. And um, when we think about wh where they are now, we'll get into your thoughts on on policy, how we might help some of them or all of them revive I mean, in part from a framing point of view because they've gone through this cycle and i presumably you know, many of them prior to the 1850s prior to you know the the uh the expansion of domestic tourism were well they, they were tiny places very small places uh not much going on you know kind of very localized and obviously some of them uh grew quite quite rapidly over a, a relatively short period so when, when we're thinking about them how how do we then think about where it is we're trying to get them back to as it were or to revive is it is it mm. in the gloriana phase is that your sense that that's typically what what these places are aspiring to or or do they see something different no i don't think you know one of the consistent themes in the blog and really everything i write about and when i'm working with you know kind of clients is you can never go back to the past and often i think places go down of you know a kind of a really kind of problematic and self-defeating route when they imagine that we can bring back the good old days. That's never going to happen. Obviously, the solution for each place will be different and uniquely tailored. And again, that's something I'm always very kind of clear about. You can learn from other places, you can see what other places have done, and you can borrow from kind of what they've done successfully. But it's about forming and kind of setting your own kind of unique path. But in terms of where they want to go, so I think it's about um, creating a stable, sustainable economy tackling some of the social problems uh, and addressing some of the kind of physical problems. Um, but I think each place needs to kind of find its own size and shape and level of growth that kind of works for them. But yes, it's absolutely not about going back to the past. Okay, so so let's let's go on to, to that sort of second blog, as it were, um, where you think about then the, the revival. You start off with rather a, an interesting example of um, how the Chinese deal with their seaside or potentially dealt with their seaside yeah. towns in Australia. Just tell us a little bit more. Again, I think there are some echoes in the way that we think about some of these things in the uh, in the UK, but maybe not quite as draconian. But just give us that example. <laughs> yeah, so it was. So I start off by kind of explaining about the Chinese Communist Party had a very simple way of sustaining seaside towns, which is that the state would build them as the state, you know, kind of was the kind of dominant player, obviously, in a kind of communist kind of economy. Uh, so the state would kind of build seaside towns and then would a combination of directing and subsidizing civil servants to go and take their holidays in the seaside towns. So the state was, in a sense, in control of supply and demand. And that was until um, Deng Xiaoping's new economic strategy uh, in the late 1970s, when he wanted to open up the Chinese economy to a level of kind of free enterprise. So in a sense, after having had a, you know, kind of guaranteed income and guaranteed uh, demand, 
uh, seaside towns then had to, in a sense, kind of compete with one another um, and with other kind of tourism destinations. So I think the analogy I was trying to draw is that within a couple of years, Chinese seaside towns had to, in a sense, deal with the quite savage economic forces that British seaside towns have been dealing with for kind of decades and decades. I thought it was quite interesting, yeah, yeah. in a sense, kind of policy laboratory, if you like. I think it's an interesting, you know, sort of area around understanding, uh, even in, in a incredibly kind of powerful states, what the state power is and where the levers are available to you and, and whether you're, you know, pushing with or pushing against kind of larger consumer and market uh, market trends. I think there's a kind of interesting sort of area mm. in that, which is belies a lot of the work that we do in sort of regeneration and urban economic development, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then the question then is, what is the kind of role of the state? Um, and without, I guess, kind of prejudging your questions, I think there is a temptation to say that, you know, the government should have a very comprehensive and detailed list of things that it should do uh, with regard to regeneration and kind of seaside towns in particular. And I take a slightly different view in that I think that what the government can do best is set a framework, set incentives, provide a level of funding and a level of kind of freedom and flexibility, uh, and then in a sense give places the freedom and the tools to kind of, uh, yeah, kind of do things for themselves rather than the state trying to kind of do everything. I think particularly at the moment, I think it would be very difficult for the government to um, formulate and develop uh, a very sophisticated and kind of comprehensive strategy. I'm not sure it has the kind of, I guess the word bandwidth is the kind of current kind yeah. of terminology. I'm not sure it has the kind of bandwidth to do that. Yeah, no, quite, quite. Um, and you, you already mentioned earlier on about, you know, this sort of the incoherence and uh, around how we think about seaside towns relative to other sort of issues that, you know, we often grapple with in, in Regem. In the paper, then you begin to lay out, um, to, to start to lay out a policy programme saying about, Know, what the government ought to be doing let's ignore whether they are going to do it or whether they can do it currently because mm -hmm. these things are are also also partly cyclical in some respects but but you lay out sort of four areas i think that you you would ideally want um government to be to be focused on so just take us through the, the those four so the first one you reference is about you know the questions about funding and particularly capital yeah. funding so say a little bit more about that and then we'll get into your do's and don'ts as well sure okay so the yeah, as I said, so I, so instead, so what I say the government should do four kind of high level things. The first is creating a single capital pot of cash, that's to pay for uh, kind of physical improvements. Um, so you'll see, you know, the legacy of the kind of the decline of some seaside towns, you know, has a very kind of physical manifestation. You'll see kind of piers that are run down, hotels that are empty. Just a general, you know, physical spaces that generally look and feel tired and run down uh, and, you know, kind of boarded up. And while physical regeneration is not the absolute answer, I think in order to create a sense of momentum uh, and to create kind of, you know, visible signs that a place is changing, government creates a single kind of capital pot that places can access to pay for both small scale and large scale physical redevelopments. Because, I mean, if you look at the, the you know, the levelling up white, white paper you know there's quite a lot of it around pride of place about these sort of interventions to make places look better which yeah. sometimes can be derided as being you know purely cosmetic and you mm. know just all on the visible and on the visual mm. but you're saying in a sense that 
particularly in seaside towns, you know, that there is a particular nature to those sorts of interventions because of the decayed fabric that we see, the physical fabric that we see in these sorts of places. Is that right? So would you be broadly supportive of that kind of pride of place agenda as it relates to seaside towns? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it, it needs to be underpinned by other things. So if it's just physical, if you're just wiping away the graffiti and fixing windows, that's really important, but it has to be underpinned by something else. Yeah. Um, so you need to be also acting on, you know, the kind of social problems and the economic kind of problems as well. It's worth kind of flagging as well that in seaside towns, there is a particular aspect, which is, you know, kind of seawater is corrosive. If you're having water blowing in constantly, that has a physical, you know, kind of cost. Um, so you do need to kind of work hard to make sure that the, yeah, that the kind of physical appearance uh, of a place uh, is you know attractive and exciting, particularly if you're interested in uh, you know kind of getting more and more tourists to the place. Um, there are some people who might you know like going to places which you know have an edge, if you like, or feel a little bit run down. That's not what most people want, actually. No. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I think the pride of place uh, agenda is really important. I think it sends a signal that a place is changing. It sends a signal that people care uh, and that people yeah, kind of take care in the appearance of the place. But that needs to be underpinned and backed up by other things, too. OK, OK. So that that's that's your first thing for the central government. The second thing then uh, focuses a little bit on financial freedoms and flexibility. So say a little bit more around uh, around that. Yeah, so we've talked about the kind of capital funding, but there's also a need for kind of revenue funding as well. Again, because, you know, some places... Um, you know, they were reliant for a long time on the tourism uh, economy. Um, and I think it would be interesting to kind of create, to, you know, kind of extend the sort of freedoms and flexibilities agenda um, to give uh, seaside towns and potentially other types of places greater kind of freedoms to charge for things or to be flexible with tax in order to kind of create that kind of revenue um, so that would be, I guess, a combination of kind of fiscal changes so that seaside towns can generate money at the same time as being able to be flexible with certain kind of types of tax in order to, in theory at least, kind of, yeah, kind of generate more kind of economic activity. Yeah. And that's, a, as you say, that's that's applicable in this context to seaside towns, but it's a general uh, a general observation about freedoms and flexibilities that many of our local authorities do not have relative to their peers in other parts of the you know of the globe right absolutely absolutely you know it's this is a long observed problem in the uk <laughs> that we are incredibly centralized you know we have a yeah kind of central government which exercises a level of power over local government which as, as you said by international standards is just astonishing so in general yeah we need to kind of be giving more kind of freedoms and flexibilities to local authorities and to you know kind of um sub-regional regional organizations as well yeah no i completely agree uh with with that so you, your third area then is takes you into the uh thinking about transport and the connectivity points that you you mm. raised earlier on the problem side what would you what what are you advocating there what would you like to see um government do slightly differently so i think this comes down to kind of green book rules and the way that government assesses tr transport schemes so it's very difficult for for seaside towns and other areas which can be thought of as remote to um, make a successful case for transport funding because as i said earlier because they are you know kind of remote they are kind of far away from kind of other places so usually by the usual kind of assessment standards um it's hard to get funding into transport uh, in seaside towns 
Now, that's obviously a huge problem because, as I said, you know, the kind of lack of kind of connectivity is part of the kind of problem that some seaside towns face. Um, so, yeah, so the third area which governments, I think, can kind of proactively and positively do is to change the way that it assesses uh, applications for transport funding in order to get more money uh, into, seaside, into seaside towns. So it's kind of growing rail stations, dueling railways and roads, uh, and just in general, yeah, kind of making it easier for places to connect. And that And that would be about... You know, being very clear about rather than say start from the transport end, you start with the reviving these places end or the question, and then as a result of that, you conclude rightly that they are disconnected or not or poorly connected to, to places. And you know, whilst you can do things in and of those places, part of it is a connection agenda, which means that those places are better connected. You know, both ways out and in. in yeah, order absolutely. For them to be kind of viable, potentially viable places over the. You know for the next period yeah absolutely absolutely it, it's, it's actually quite hard so i think i give the example of brighton which is an example of a place which is well connected to london but you know london obviously is a um is, is not typical of cities in the uk and brighton is not typical of places on the seaside either most places would find it very difficult to kind of establish the kind of relationship that brighton has with london because as we've talked about yeah the kind of lack of connectivity so we just need to make it easier to kind of reintegrate if you like seaside towns into the broader kind of economic geography um and that starts um with yeah the kind of physical kind of connectivity is yeah kind of really important there's an aspect about buses as well that i don't really talk about in the blog um but i think in seaside towns and in you know market towns and other places i think the lack of high quality well connected yeah kind of bus services is a real problem you know i've kind of spoken to uh, you know, through work I've done in kind of focus groups, younger people who've had, uh, you know, they've won places at, you know, kind of colleges and universities, and they're struggling yes. to work out how they're just going to get there yeah. on time without, you know, going to the bus stop at six o'clock in the morning, which yeah. is not ideal for a young person. Um, so, yeah, so there's the kind of bus elements as well that I don't really talk about much in the blog, but I think... No, that's a great point. And yeah, I, and I, you know, as you know, I think thinking about our transport systems within places um is that you know more important in some respects but at least as important as thinking about the transport system between you yes. know between places yes. and i know and i think the way that the public transport system is organized in the uk again compared to many um many of our counterparts in other parts of the world put puts mm. places and people who rely on it at a disadvantage and that's part of the problem right yeah. i don't know the numbers but i can imagine that if you go to some of our seaside towns reliance on uh, public transport of some persuasion is going to be you know much higher than it is for you know for the average person as it were yeah absolutely absolutely and then your fourth and final um kind of point to central government is quite a, an interesting one particularly <laughs> for those of us that are offering you know the think about you know analysis and research and it's basically don't do any more research but but again you've got a kind of interesting view on that and it's maybe not quite as quite as clear as cut as that but just say a little bit about what you mean by that yeah, absolutely. So, and also as somebody who is, you know, I'm a freelance consultant, a lot of the work <laughs> I do is research-based as well. So I'm not, uh, you know, I obviously don't have a problem with research or people being paid to do research. What I do have a slight problem with um, is I think there are occasions when seaside poverty becomes uh, becomes a, an issue of kind of public concern. So when Jaywick, for example, became um you know the kind of most deprived part of the country there was lots of discussion around kind of seaside deprivation and i think sometimes what the government what 
different governments have done in the past is to commission research as a way of saying, you know, this is what we are doing. Something must be done, so we will commission research. Um, uh, and I think what's, what's now happened is that seaside towns have gone from, uh, there was a kind of quote that they were the least understood of Britain's, you know, kind of problem areas, if you like. I'm not, I'm not a fan of the word problem areas, but nonetheless, you know, they've gone from being the least understood to actually we've now got quite a lot of research about the problem. Yeah. Um, and I think, so what I, I think, what I'm against is government saying, you know, kind of something must be done or government's being under pressure to do something and then just commissioning research, which in a sense re-articulates the problem. And I link to a, a very good Stephen Bush uh, article uh, when he was at the New Statesman uh, in which he talks about how, you know, kind of governments have, yeah, kind of issued uh, and, you know, commissioned lots of research into the problem of kind of ethnic disparities, uh, when in fact we actually know what the problem is now to some extent. What we need to do is to, you know, kind of do something about it. So, yeah, so obviously I don't have a problem with, yeah, kind of research, but I think if governments are using commissioning research instead of doing something, yeah. sort of actually, yeah. not doing the research is as valuable as it is, is not the same as doing something, you know, on the back of research that we've got. No research is perfect, but if we've got, you know, once we've got a sense of what's going on, then you're right, we need to move towards um, action. So you, you move on then, because so those are the four things that we think government should be thinking about and maybe uh, taking forward. And then you begin to think about how do places then internalise that and think about that, move forward. And you've got your three do's and don'ts, which I think mm. are really kind of, again, super helpful and and can be challenging for places because in some some regards you know they they push back against uh, mm. sort of standard practice or standard thinking in this area so again let's let's just kind of work through the, the 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 three do's and then the three don'ts so the first do is to be holistic comprehensive so just say a little bit about why that i mean and on a face value yes that is important but actually there's a particular rationale for uh, for being holistic and comprehensive in the seaside town context? So I think we, referring back to the research, um, I think we recognise now that the problem in seaside towns is kind of interconnected. It's not just a problem with housing. It's not just a problem with transport. It's that it's that in, it's those interlocking factors of, you know, kind of economic decline, social imbalance, physical uh, decline, and then, yeah, the kind of lack of kind of connectivity. So if you recognise that the problem is interconnected, we then need to uh, logically work on the basis that the solution needs to be kind of holistic as well. So we need to be acting on the physical, the social, the economic, and the kind of transport connectivity elements as well. Now that might sound obvious, but actually, you know, for a number of reasons, places aren't always able to do that, or, you know, they go down the route of thinking. And I, you know, I kind of talk about this in the, in the article. You know, some people's approach might be, well, if we fix the housing, everything will fall into place. Or if you fix the transport, everything will fall into place. That's not quite true. Now, obviously, you can't kind of tackle everything at once. So you need to sequence and kind of prioritize. Mm. But you need to have that holistic sense of, you know, acting, as I said, on the social, the economic, the physical and the kind of connectivity kind of part as well. Yeah. And that's a distinction, right, John, about, about it's not, as you said, it's not about saying, you know, we we have to make progress on all things all at the same time. Absolutely. By by definition, we're going to make some progress on some mm -hmm. things, maybe at a faster rate or in a different way than other things. But we have to keep all things in our mind that if, if we're making good progress on one issue, there may be three or four or five or six other issues that we also need to to be mindful about and try to make progress on them rather than get just get sort of prioritized into one thing and just see that as the answer. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I refer to the original Margate Renewal Framework, um, which, you know, kind of there is still lots of work to do in, you know, kind of Margate. Um, and people, I think, associate Margate with the kind of cultural regeneration. But the original Margate Renewal Framework was very clear about some of the really difficult issues yeah. that the place was trying to solve in terms of housing imbalance and kind of demographic and, yeah, kind of balances as well so yes you're right we can't do everything at once and we can't improve everything all at once and we need to be practical in terms of the money that's available and the policy levers that we can yeah kind of pull but nonetheless when we think about the problem we need to think about it in that kind of holistic fashion okay great so um your second do is make the strategy sui generous yeah. uh so just say a little bit about what that means for you and and you you also recognize that there's some again some challenges in that in doing that um, which it would be good to, you know, good for you to highlight and we're going to talk through. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really important, you know, and I've worked with many different, I've worked with neighbourhoods and cities and regions and regional governments all kind of across England. I think one of the things I'm always very clear about is that your strategy for your place has to be rooted in the strengths and the weaknesses and the peculiar kind of characteristics of your place. Now, again, that might sound obvious, but in some places what happens is, um, you know, there's a tendency to see what's worked elsewhere and see if you can just kind of copy what they've done. Now, obviously, it's important to learn from other places and to kind of apply, you know, kind of what works and good practice and so on. But in terms of thinking about your place, it has to be absolutely rooted in the kind of characteristics of your place. And that can sometimes get forgotten. And I give the example of I was talking to a potential client who, when they were talking about what, you know, kind of what they wanted their place to be, they said, we want to be the next Brighton. We want to be the new Brighton. And I had to explain that there already is a new Brighton. It's called New Brighton. It's up in the Northwest and, you know, it's not, not far from where I'm from. Um, so it's that sense of, yes, OK, yeah, let's learn from other places and borrow what works and steal kind of good ideas. Um, but your strategy has to be rooted in kind of your place. And I think yeah, that might sound obvious, but often kind of gets forgotten. And do you, do you think then in that sort of scenario, John, that, you know, there is enough uniqueness or enough you know idiosyncrasy in any one area that can you can identify but actually be, can form the bedrock of or at least you know a, a core part of of a revival strategy do you are you confident yeah. that you, yes absolutely yeah i'm confident about all places you know kind of i think it's really you know we often talk about typical places or normal places if you go to any town or village or neighborhood you will find interesting things you will find fascinating people you'll find captivating stories you'll find things of beauty you will find historical kind of assets um so yeah i think that's true of all places not just seaside towns if you go kind of anywhere and there's the example i use in the in the you know i think if you look at the the image at the top of the first blog or maybe yeah. that's the end of the first blog and it looks like these little jewels and these multicolored things and it, it's hard to kind of say what they're but they're like gems or jewels and actually it, they're just grains of sand but they are you know uh, kind of magnified yeah. so i think if you look close enough at a place you will find the equivalent of that what might look like sand actually when you look very close you'll find color and glory and beauty and all these things so yeah i think every place has yeah has that has those kind of strengths and kind of assets to kind of build yeah. strategy and then and then your third do is uh to engage to, yeah. uh, to engage the people that are there you know that know the area best and again that kind of feels um familiar one of the thoughts i had um when i was reading that that bit and actually it's a broader point i'm interested to get your reflections on it i guess you tell me otherwise but i guess part of the story of revival for some of these places is to think about how they're 
their places become are become attractive or need to become attractive to outsiders you know people that mm, are mm. not currently there either working there living there or visiting there and i wonder whether do you see a tension then between two focused on you know those that are already there and not enough not enough focus on those that aren't there but we would ideally want them to be there or do you not see that as a sort of a tension i'm not sure there is a tension really um I think most people living in seaside towns and other places which have a kind of tourism sector, I think they recognise that, you know, kind of tourism is an important part uh, of the kind of local economy. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you'll always get some people, I guess, who want to kind of keep things as they are and are resistant to change. But I think if you talk to kind of most people and if you engage in a, you know, kind of effective way, um, yeah, I think you can have a realistic and sensible conversation with people. I don't think there's much of a tension there. Really. No, no. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't think there are as well. But I think it's an, it's an often an interesting one, you know, in mm. a sense that part of the you know, if you look at some of these places that have, that have done well, you know, Brighton or Margate, some of those it seems to me part of the story is that people have come there that weren't mm. there before for what for a variety of different reasons that change over time as well. And I think is always kind of been mindful about about that it's not just about those that are currently there but it's those that you know may be there in whatever in whatever guys in the future as well and where do we create you know opportunities to understand what they what they would ideally want yeah yeah that that's that's true but uh, but i think we mustn't work on the assumption that if you ask local people if you ask people in an area what they think they're automatically going to be against change and maybe yes. you know kind of now some people are like that and i guess um a, a, you know kind of a, a flaw in the way we do engagement sometimes is you might actually attract people who have the time uh, and have been maybe long-standing residents and have a certain kind of set of views um but i but i think you know kind of yeah we should we, yeah we kind of shouldn't assume that people living in a seaside town or any kind of place are automatically kind of against yes. change yeah. and against kind of development and evolution no i agree with that i agree with that okay so let's move on to your three um don't so your first don't is don't rely on culture as the solution i can hear the hands going up in the air now as we um when you when i read that out john so just tell us what you mean by that and why because there is a lot of that as you say in yeah, lots absolutely. of places and it's not that it's not good it's just it's not enough right i mean i think that's the point that you're, you're yeah making. absolutely so culture in its broader sense is a can be and is and will always be a really important part of the regeneration uh, and the renewal uh, of uh, you know kind of neighborhoods towns cities um in many places i've worked culture has been a really important yeah kind of way to kind of change people's lives and improve the local economy uh, and create really interesting new uses for kind of spaces and places my caution my caveat is that i think it's easy for places to say we will have culture-led regeneration because that sounds good and who would argue against it but often when you scratch under the surface there isn't much there in terms of well who's producing this culture you know who is buying it um culture for whom what type of culture so i think it, yeah as i said it can be very easy to sort of treat think of culture as this kind of magic one that you can kind of wave that will lead to regeneration uh, and your um and and in part that relates to your second don't which is uh don't go back to the future which we sort of touched on earlier on and there are things to build on in places they have a a, his, a rich history in some respects mm -hmm. but trying to 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 remake that history uh in a 
you know, in the way that it was, uh, is probably mm. not conducive to, to revival, right? Absolutely. And the, yeah, so the phrase I use, which some people have, yeah, kind of, which some people have some people have picked up on is that elegy is not strategy. So describing how things were, um, it's important to understand the history uh, and where you've come from. Um, trying to replicate that for the future is just not an effective way to move forward. Um, and in particular, that kind of applies to kind of tourism. So the tourism offer of the future is going to be very, very different from the tourism offer of the past. Um, uh, so yeah, so it's about understanding, yeah, kind of what will the kind of tourism offer look like um, in you know 10, 20, 30 years time as opposed to looking back 10, 20, 30 years and seeing if we can kind of replicate it and make it you know kind of happen all over again. Yeah. And it's particularly um it's not thinking that the mass market sort of tourism industry is not going to return in the way, you know, certainly not in the way that it we had it in the Gloriana phase. Mm. Even if we mm. get some of these places being more attractive and you know to different types of tourists or consumers it's going to be niche and specialist rather than yeah, that kind of absolutely. mass market oriented, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it will be, you know, it will be places developing a specialism in food, you know, the, you know, the, the you know, kind of a place where we come to see Satan that has the most Michelin style restaurants or the best, you know, kind of food. Uh, other places might develop, uh, you know, like a kind of annual event. Other places might, you know, kind of specialize in, to refer to culture, you know, certain types of, sculpture or public art and I think it's about finding and this links to the kind of previous point about being kind of unique um what is your particular offer for the future that is niche and distinctive to your place as opposed to a generic mass market offer which is not really going to work in most places yeah and then your third um don't uh which is very particular to the nature of these sorts of places and their location which is don't ignore uh, the environment not least because they're on they're on the sea, you know, they oh. suffer from, as you said, you know, from coastal erosion plus rising sea levels, etc. So just, I mean, how does that get, how do people kind of get into that sort of space? What do you actually mean by that? And how do they, how do they take that don't seriously? Well, so I think it's about one is, you know, it's again, it sounds obvious, but recognizing that climate change is happening already. Uh, and that will have implications for seaside towns, both in terms of rising sea levels and coastal erosion too. Um, I don't think we have the data at the moment to be able to say exactly what those impacts will be on kind of specific places. But nonetheless, seaside towns in general are at the kind of sharp end uh, of those changes. So we need to be thinking then about what are the kind of mitigation measures um, that need to kind of be in place. Um, and yeah, how do we kind of equip and support communities to manage and deal with the kind of implications of inevitable change and at the same time take local measures that need to be part of national and global measures i guess to kind of prevent any kind of further change as well yeah and your sort of policy program as you you lay out some of the sort of measures that places then can do feed on from from the do's and the don'ts and, and the broader analysis you know trying to deal with physical decay trying to rebalance the economy or at least move it away from tourism you you, you rightly identify you know, public service challenges, for example, around health and education, mm. which again, you know, reading through that, I, I wonder, you know, thinking about and connecting that to the to the leveling up agenda as it as at least as it was expressed in the white paper back in in February. What what was your connect? Because there was there was quite a bit in there around, as you say, pride of place, mm -hmm. but there's also quite a bit in there around improving public services at the sort of general 
level, whether that was crime, whether that was health, whether that was uh, education. But just just your reflections on on the white paper's agenda, particularly in relation to seaside towns. Were you hopeful or, or were you not, notwithstanding where we've got to now? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I, I was hopeful, actually. I think there's there are, you know, there were good chunks of the levelling up white paper where clearly there'd been a lot of uh, thought had kind of gone into it. And it's interesting for me, as somebody who used to be a civil servant and started my career in, in the civil servant, in the civil service, working on the national strategy for neighborhood renewal, to see which elements of the national strategy, particularly around kind of health, had, you know, kind of survived, if you like. And so, uh, yeah, so I think there, there's, there's lots of stuff in the leveling up white paper, which can be of great use to local areas. Uh, I think, though, in general, it's about, as you know, kind of going back to the kind of devolution point, places can't wait for kind of the government strategy to come around and kind of shine on them, if you like. Places have to be, you know, kind of pro proactive uh, and think about what leaders do they have locally that they can, yeah, kind of pull. So, uh, yeah, I think there's lots of good stuff in the leveling of white paper, but a government white paper is never going to kind of fix everything. It is a set of tools and resources that local that local places, yeah, kind of can can use. And in the paper, you uh, in the blogs, you talk about, um, you know, like the third phase is this sort of fragile, you know, recovery. And you've got some great examples of, you know, of kernels of progress and, and activity in different parts of the of the country. It just I mean, where are you in terms of where do you feel that sort of fragile recovery is, uh, John? You know, is it continuing to make progress? Has it stalled? You know, is it in a few places, but not in many places? How do you? How do you sort of characterise where, where you think we are with, with the seaside towns? Well, obviously, COVID, you know, kind of had a very unusual impact on kind of all places. Uh, and it's had an impact on, yeah, kind of tourism as well. So it's, it's difficult to be very precise, given that we're still working with the implications of that very mm. strange period. Um, but I think we have a number of things which are working in favour of seaside towns. One, I think there is a recognition um, of the peculiar problems that some seaside towns and again i'm talking about some seaside towns not all mm -hmm. seaside towns there's a recognition of the problem of the particular problems that some seaside towns face uh i think two we are seeing a really exciting um level of kind of leadership both on the kind of political and on the officer level as well so we're seeing people really kind of get you know kind of getting to grips with the problem uh in some places and i think thirdly you can point to I think broadly some economic trends which can be made to work for seaside towns so one of them is obviously with more and more people choosing not to fly choosing to kind of take their vacations in the UK so again that's an enormous opportunity for yeah for kind of seaside towns. Where would you want to see you know national government of whichever persuasion you know we're in, in not mm. too near the future we you know we're going to get into election periods and mm. maybe sooner mm. rather than later but certainly within you know, within 18 months or, you know, two years type of thing. Uh, where would you want to see, you know, government or national parties thinking about these sorts of things to match what you see going on on the ground? What would you like to see? So, so I think there are, so I think there's broadly two things. So one is around, there are certain things that only central government can do. Um, so transport, for example, you're not going to get a local area, you know, that can pay for its own kind of transport infrastructure. So I think there are some things that kind of government and pretty much government alone can do. So that's kind of helping with the transport and creating that kind of physical part to pay for the small and large scale physical improvements. The second area is then, I think, 
giving local areas the freedoms and flexibilities and powers to set their own strategy and with you know, assistance from government and some funding from government to in a sense set their own vision um, and yeah kind of move forward in that way. Brilliant. Uh, my guest today has been John Houghton. John, thanks very much for being part of City Talks. Um, you can get your um, the two brilliant blogs that you've written, Solving the Riddle of the Sands, on your uh, on your Medium uh, platform. But John, thank you very much for being part of City Talks. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks, brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review, and subscribe if you liked what you heard. You can also follow the centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner, used with permission and all rights are reserved.